taping every word we say for posterity. It's, don't record that. <laughs> yeah, for posterity, right. <clears throat> You guys are desperate, aren't you, tonight? I mean, you're going to laugh at anything, aren't you? Well, this isn't a funny talk, so get it all out of your system. Once at a three-month retreat, deep in the retreat, and it was just a group that liked to laugh, and definitely they were desperate. And this is, this is true. I came in once. I don't know, I think it was in the morning or something, and I said, uh... That's as far as I got. They all cracked up. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been a long couple of rainy days. <laughs> all right. So, you know, there's, as I'm sure you've heard, there's different ways to talk about or to describe in a nutshell what the heart of um, our path of awakening is. One way to talk about it is that what we're really doing, not just on retreat but in our whole life, is uh, transforming our consciousness. And when we talk about purifying our consciousness, transforming the habits of consciousness, right? We've talked about that a lot. And we've talked about it, for the most part, in terms of the actual meditation practice. Whether we're doing um, one-pointed samatha practice, which is that as the mind gets more and more collected, the hindrances, the kalesas are kept at bay, they're kept away. And that sense of collectedness, part of why it's so lovely is because there's also a purity in the consciousness, in the mind at that time. Just seeing what it feels like not to have any hindrances, is like, wow, <coughs> lovely, just to know it's possible, you know. And the same with mindfulness. The whole thing we've been talking about is how the steadiness of mindfulness, that momentum that builds, is the condition that allows wisdom to arise. It's not that we create wisdom, but the momentum of mindfulness sets the conditions in the consciousness that allows wisdom to arise. So what I want to talk about tonight is the fact it's not just meditation. That the Buddha and all of his different teachings, at the heart of all of them, are, the, are their ways, their, they work to transform the habits of our consciousness from being lost in the habits of negativity, of craving, of self-referencing, to wholesome, kusala in the Pali, akusala unwholesome, kusala wholesome, the wholesome qualities of Mindfulness, wisdom, energy, equanimity, calm, all the different ones. And there's many, um, many different suttas where the Buddha gives a graduated teaching. I'm just going to give you one that I particularly like, but he does it a lot. Where it's like not just saying, okay, here's the Four Noble Truths, start abandoning craving now but seeing that one's mind needs to be in a receptive, appropriate state. That basically, when our mind's in unwholesome state, we can't even recognize or hear the Dhamma accurately. Remember I said the other night, when the mind's uh, colored, when chitta's colored by unwholesome, we can't recognize accurately. 
And so there's all the different teachings of the Buddha are equally important and they're all grounded in freeing our heart and mind from confusion, in brightening the mind in order to recognize the truth accurately. So just we can, here because we're on a retreat, we can get so myopic about it's just about bhavana, just about meditation practice and everything else is lesser or I just do this when you know I'm hopeless in the meditation. And that's way, way, way too limited. This is about our whole life. So this story is about one time the Buddha was at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove. And now this is at that time in Rajagaha, there was a leper named Supa Buddha, a poor, miserable wretch of a person. So this poor, miserable wretch of a person saw a huge gathering, which was people coming to hear the Buddha teaching. And he thought, oh, without a doubt, someone must be distributing food over there. So let me go over and get some food. So he went over, sat down on the edge of the group, saw that the Buddha was teaching and thought, oh, no one's distributing food over here. He's teaching the Dhamma. Well, why don't I sit and listen? So he sits on the edge to listen. And the Buddha, who is said with his all-seeing mind, I, when he turned his mind to it, who could kind of see in the minds and hearts of everyone, he looked through and said, now who here is capable of understanding the Dhamma? Kind of could suss out whose mind is ripe. And he, he saw Supa Buddha and he saw him, oh, here's a person capable of understanding. So he gave a step-by-step talk, and this is what's in so many of the suttas, a step-by-step talk. He began with a talk on giving, on generosity, then a talk on virtue, on sila, non-harming conduct, then on the heavens. Then he described the drawbacks, the vanity, the corrupting influence in the mind of giving in to sensual passions, craving, and the rewards of renunciation. Then, when he saw that Supa Buddha's mind was ready, pliable or malleable, not stiff, free from hindrances, uplifted and bright. And this, this phrasing is used in most of the suttas where he gives this graduated talk. When he saw the mind and heart was free from hindrances, uplifted and bright, then he gave the Dhamma talk particular to the awakened one, that is the Four Noble Truths. And this is, I think, not a throwaway line. This is really important to see that there's many ways to cultivate, to bring a brightness, a clarity to the mind so that the mind can actually open to wisdom. And actually the um, metaphor that's given, the simile. So he gave a, a talk on the Four Noble Truths. And just as a clean cloth, free from stains, would properly absorb a dye in the same way as Supa Buddha the leper was sitting in that very seat, the dustless, stainless Dhamma eye arose within him. Whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. That sure, that statement when the Dhamma eye and someone sees that is said in the suttas, they mean he's, he's that, that's the first stage of awakening. So that the mind is bright just as a clean cloth free from stains can properly absorb a dye in a moment that the mind is bright and clear and open and not caught in craving, it can properly recognize the Dhamma, recognize things as they are, that yata bhuta we talked about the other night. So tonight 
What I want to talk about is just this first one of this graduated teaching, dana, generosity. Because it's really something that's at the foundation of the Buddha's teachings. Whenever he talks to lay people, he almost always starts with talking about generosity. And it's something that um, I've just been learning more and more about. It's something that in, in the um, more Buddhist cultures in Asia is, of course, uh, still more kind of formally rooted in the way that the relationships between the ordained monks and nuns and the lay people is set up. But because of that, it's also more ingrained in the culture in a certain way. But, um, of course, we're generous here, too. I just want to talk about it as um, a practice that supports our awakening. Not a good thing to do. We should be generous. You know, good people are generous. I, I grew up that way. I'm nothing wrong with that. But generosity as a practice of awakening, as a way of of setting the foundation for freeing the mind and heart from clinging, it's not about an external should. It's actually a practice of, it cultivates this brightness of mind and heart and a real powerful source of of joy and connectedness and non, um, not self really, not holding to kind of the isolation of me. And it's, it's fun. It's really fun. So, I'm sure, well, probably most of you are aware, but when the Buddha set up his sangha, his, his group of monks and nuns, when he was basically making it up, right? There were a lot of renunciates all over India at that time, more men than women, but some women. And they kind of wandered, there were different sects. So when the Buddha set up his, his uh, sangha of monks and later of nuns, he was, you know, using what was in the culture, but he also set it up in his own way. And at the very uh, heart of it, it was that the, there's four types of people, ordained men, ordained women, lay men, and lay women. And he always said that the Buddha sasana, that his Buddha's teachings to remain uh, vibrant and alive in the world needs all four types of people. So even though often in the suttas he's talking to monks and nuns, there's never a sense they're only the ones. And the lay people, well, they can come if they want, you know. They depend on each other. And so he set up the way that the monks and nuns lived and the way that the nuns and monks and lay people relate to each other. At the heart of it is generosity. Dana, the word in Pali. Bhikkhu Bodhi you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's like one of the foremost translators into English of the Pali texts, an American monk who lived in Sri Lanka for many, many years. Now he's back in the States. So he's talking about the importance of generosity of dana in the Buddha's teaching. Believe me, he knows the Buddha's teaching. Viewed as the quality of generosity has a particularly intimate connection to the entire movement of the Buddha's path. For the goal of the path is the ending of greed, hate, and delusion. And the cultivation of generosity directly weakens greed and hate, while facilitating that flexibility of mind that allows for the eradication of delusion. So the practice of generosity 
not just in action, but in intention, in mind, in heart, directly in the moment weakens greed and ill will and hatred. And it brings this flexibility, this brightness, this pliancy of mind that allows for the opening into seeing, recognizing things as they are. So when the, when the Buddha set up his sangha, he really made it so that the monks and nuns and the lay people were mutually supportive of, of one another, or like they mutually supported each other's awakening. So it's, I mean, it's pretty widely known that the monks and also the nuns would go out, the monks still do, go out for alms round every morning with their bowl, a little smaller than that, go, go out with their bowls. Some of them are big, though. And the lay people give food. And this still goes on in Thailand and Burma. I don't know about Cambodia or Sri Lanka. I haven't been there. It still goes on. And lay people go out and they give what they can. In the places I've been in Burma now, it's often only just a little bit of rice. That's really all they can give. And the meditation centers cook. But there's still this sense of the the mutuality, and it's really important. And when the monks are going out, someone goes, a little boy goes ahead kind of ringing a bell, a little bell, and the people come out and they're standing there waiting, some nuns or lay people, men, women, just to give their little bit of rice. And you can see they're happy to do it. They don't have to do it, you know. The monks just walk without looking up. It's not an interaction, and they give. And he set it up so that um, monks bhikkhus and bhikkhunis couldn't keep food overnight. So you can't store stuff. It's not like you can get a lot and then say, okay, now I don't have to deal with people. Every day, they have to go out and get their food. So even though he's talking about being recluse, you know, and living alone and go to the roots of trees, you can never completely, they could never completely divorce themselves from connection with lay people, dependent on them on a daily basis for food, for medicine, for where to live, for their Garments, those are the four things that renunciates could have. And in turn, their gift of generosity to the lay people is because the monks and nuns have more opportunity for the subtle uh, meditation practices. Sure, lay people could practice too, but clearly renunciates have more time and more opportunity. They, their dana, their generosity is to freely share their understanding and the dhamma, you know, whenever asked or whenever the opportunity arises. Not to stint, not to be stingy. And so, as Bhikkhu Bodhi, oh, yeah, Bhikkhu Bodhi says says this, he's translating, at the end of the Buddhist describing this, how monks and nuns, you are helpful to the householders, you teach them the Dhamma, they are helpful to you, they provide you with the requisites that you need. And so, monks, nuns, this spiritual life is lived with mutual support for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of suffering. So mutual support, based not in any kind of should or pressure, but based in the quality of open-hearted sharing, open-hearted generosity. For the, you know, generosity not, well, let me give this monk this good thing, and maybe this monk's a better monk. They'll give me a good Dhamma talk, and maybe I'll get enlightened. You know, we can, we can turn it to selfishness. But again, in the way the Sangha was set up, one of the reasons when the monks and nuns are going on alms round, they're not really, they don't look, they don't say thank you, because it's not meant to be personal. If something's offered, 
in the alms bowl, in many of the places I've been, they go back and share it all with everybody. So when you're offering something to a monk, to a nun, you're offering it to the whole sangha. So it's meant to take the personal getting or giving out of it. And it's really, um, it, it really um, counters this false sense of, of separation, fearful, I need, a monk gets good food, he wants to go and I'm not going back to the others, I got a good curry this time, I'm going to go off and hide, you know, in my, in my hut. You know, they don't do that, they just all come back together and share. So even today, that is very present in the culture in Thailand and in Burma. Um, and it's this immediate face-to-face quality that I think gives it the power that I hadn't experienced in the many, many, many examples of generosity in this culture. I think I first noticed it when I, many, many years ago, I was a, a nun for, for a short time, maybe a year in Thailand, and at one point I was staying in a, in a meditation center with nuns and monks up in the northern kind of jungle. And on the nun side of the river, there were only a few kutis, maybe five or six kutis for nuns to stay in and meditate. And the way those wats work in Thailand, and it's similar in Burma, it all works on, on dana, on generosity. People show up, whether they're monks or nuns or lay people, and in Thailand, they just show up. You could have a day when 30 people show up and say, we want to stay here. You never, you don't, at least back then, they didn't have computer bookings. People just showed up. And you'd find a place for them. And so maybe you were in a little hut by yourself, and then the next day, 10 women show up, and you got five women moving in to a hut that you thought was small for one. You know? And so, oh, and there's so Donna, there's no charge at all. And even now today, you go to meditation centers and monasteries in Burma or Thailand, there's no charge. Sure, it's known that it runs on dana. It needs money for electricity, for food, for maintenance, for, you know, the workers, for everything. So it's clear that's needed, but no one comes around and knocks on you, hey, you've been here a month, when are you going to offer some dana? Nothing like that. So in Thailand, I started to notice, I was, you know, the Westerner, the guest, so I was, tre- I, I was treated very kindly, with a lot of generosity. And after a while, when I came out of myself involved trying to, you know, just organize, how could I be comfortable here? Um, I started to notice that when several women showed up, not only did they not put any in my kuti, but the first woman, the first person to give up her place was the head nun, who was a young woman about 30, really into meditation, really very dedicated to awakening. So when people came, it wasn't like she's the head, so she's got the seniority, right? And the way we think here, that would be the last person to have to move. The junior ones have to deal. But she would be the one to give up her kuti or go, go move in with someone else. And I started to notice, hmm, that's really interesting. You know, the sign of greater practice of, is actually a more open, generous heart, less holding. Duh. Maybe I read that somewhere. <laughs> and it's been more in the last few years in Burma where I've really, for me, it's been a huge opening, a huge learning, uh, an incredibly joyful one of the power of generosity 
I don't even want to say it's a practice because it sounds like a forcing then, but on the power of generosity to affect the giver and the receiver to where you sometimes can't tell in terms of how one feels the qualities in the mind of brightness and openness and non-clinging and metta, who's giving and who's receiving, you know, that the quality of this open-hearted generosity, and it's not about what or how much is given, it's that, that openness, that letting go or not even holding to this sense of separate self, but just that, that metta that wants to share. It's so vibrant and so contagious that after a short time in Burma, and I, I know I'm not the only one with this experience, and I don't mean to idealize. There's plenty of weird you know, stuff going on. I'm not at all trying to idealize. In fact, the more I've gone over the last 10 years, the more I see really the distortions that come from living under such a repressive government and people that have to, no one can really escape it and how to get around it. All of that's true in a weird way. And the power of this, it's not even a commitment to generosity, it's just a quality in the culture, is so contagious and so happiness producing that the longer I'm there, this the more it becomes a way of being. And I never knew, and I I never really learned it so much before, how much that goes towards purifying the heart and mind, the consciousness at the times that it's happening, how energizing it is, how connecting it is. Um, So like the last couple of years, I think I mentioned before, I felt really, really grateful, you know, really blessed in a way to be able to be one of a few people who's a representative of many, many friends who've, who've offered money in very generous, open-hearted way, but aren't able to go and actually hand the, either the money or the, the equipment to the people face-to-face, you know. That's part of, I think, not the sadness, but just the way our world is, where we know so much suffering and pain and disasters going on in so many different places every month, something. And so much generosity in so many of our hearts, you know, okay, there's Haiti, and then there's an earthquake in Pakistan, and then there's floods in Bangladesh, and then there's floods in Australia, and an earthquake in Chile, and, um, you know, flood in, in the cyclone in Louisiana, the cyclone in Burma, it just goes on and on and on. And so many people donate so much money, you know, we send a check, we do a credit card, we, we look at pictures, and that's really deeply generous. But that's all we can do. We can't all go to Haiti, to Chile, to Pakistan every time there's a disaster. We just can't. And so we have the generous impulse and the generous giving. And we feel, I mean, when I do that, I feel some sense of, a little sense of happiness from it. But it doesn't have the strength, the completion, the kind of interrelatedness that I experience when there's a kind of person-to-person sharing that goes on the contagion, because you don't get to be present with the receiving. And what I really learned in Burma is the receiving is done in such a way of happiness and dignity. And then as soon as there's something's received, something is wanting to give back just as a way of the receiving is beautiful, the giving is beautiful. And to just be on one side ever is kind of limiting. And it's just like a cycle that keeps on flowing, that keeps on flowing. And it's um, after it, so I felt really grateful 
to be able to be a representative for so many people who don't have the chance to actually be face to face. And then the six of us who do that have a commitment to, just to, for those who are interested who've offered, to send around letters and pictures and try and describe a little bit the actual interactions. And whenever we've done that, people say, oh, it's so wonderful to hear about the actual connection. It comes alive. That's how I personally feel generosity as a practice of awakening our mind and heart out of torpor, out of confusion, out of self-interest, out of clinging, that brightens the mind and heart to make it stainless, able to absorb, to see reality as it is, to absorb the Dhamma. And it just so happens that along the way, wholesome is really pleasant. But we're not cultivating it for pleasant feeling. You know, that's when we say don't just go after the pleasant. It's not that there's anything wrong with pleasant. Pleasant's nice. But when we go for pleasant feeling, that feeling is just a vagueness, it's just gone like that. And we just want more and more and more feeling, that turns into craving. But when we recognize the wholesomeness, it happens to be pleasant. It brings great joy, but it's a joy that is bringing a brightness and a non-clinging open-heartedness to the mind that's actually onward leading, that allows us to actually recognize more accurately. And you can kind of feel. We really were saying we were going around for a month, you know, offering support to different nunneries and to HIV orphanage and to some schools and rebuilding villagers' houses and stuff. And you see a lot of suffering. So I'm not idealizing, oh, isn't it nice we give this little bit of drop in the bucket, you know, and the negative mind could go into, well, what good is this? You rebuild their house in the next month, they're going to be in just as bad of a shape. You might as well not even bother. That's one way to go. Or to say, well, you do these few peoples, but there's so many others. You're just going to engender greed in the other people's minds, so you shouldn't do anything. You see all of that. It's not that it's hidden. And there's still this sense of face-to-face generosity and receiving that opens the mind and heart beyond ourself and is really energizing. So I feel really, really grateful to be able to have that opportunity. And we noticed it was exhausting, as I think I said the other time, as a month of just go, go, go. But we really started to notice how kind of it really felt purifying. We'd come back, I would say home, but back to our meditation center, like really exhausted. But just kind of you know, the, it's like the mind, the heart feels cleansed a little bit. Like, and then when I, I come back here and say, oh, I'm just tired, I think I'll watch a movie. I'm not saying that's bad, but I don't come out of it feeling cleansed. I come out of it feeling, yeah, well, that was nice, that was a nice movie, or it wasn't a nice movie, la, la, la. But it's not the same thing. There's not this vibrant, wakeful joy that comes from wholesomeness, from purity. So I just want to give you a sense of how, in that culture, the generosity is so implicit, so alive. I'll just give you a couple of examples, but I don't want to get caught on this, but just because it is so amazing. So one, one nunnery we visited, we've known him for a few years. She's the, the head nun, Da Etengi, has been there about six years. Three years ago, there were about 30, 35 nuns who lived there, and a few couple buildings. Then... Last year, year and a half ago, she thought she needed to start a school because 
there's many, many of the young nuns and poor kids, not nuns or monks, who can't afford to go to the regular schools, which they claim there's no fee, but there's all these hidden fees and, and, and paying for books and uniforms. And, I mean, it maybe comes to $20 a month. There's so many kids whose parents can't afford that. So she thought, I need to start this school, free school, hiring teachers. This is a nun. She has no like ongoing source of support. You know, she doesn't have a steady income. So start a free school for the little nuns in the area. And this year when we went back, all the little nuns within a half an hour walking distance would walk up there to school. I'm talking little, you know, would walk up there to school, up through the, the eighth or ninth standard, which is about 13, 14. So she started with 160 kids. And there's so many in the area, she just couldn't say no. Now she has 370 kids in the school. School. So every square inch of her place is turned over to the school. Mostly they're in this outside, it's just kind of like a bamboo roof, no walls. She's paying the teachers every month, not a lot, but every month. Once a week she feeds the kids, which costs $500 approximately to feed them one meal. Food's actually quite expensive there. And she says when she feeds them, they eat a lot because she can tell they're really hungry. And so 370, she can't say no, of these poor kids absolutely free. And this is just in one little area, suburb of Yangon. This could be replicated anywhere. And she's just doing it on faith and generosity, you know? So like we go to visit, we see what she's doing, we offer something. Maybe it'll keep it going for a month or two. Maybe. She needs new buildings, she needs all this, but she's just totally happy and bright. She was telling us when we were visiting how she was so happy because it was her birthday soon. And so on her birthday, she could make a little party for all the students, give them all ice cream, make some little game. She was like so happy to be able to do this. She must have told us three or four times. I mean, she's already given him the whole school, you know, plus the 38 nuns who live there. They just have to basically turn over their whole space all day, every day. And then just at night, they roll out where they sleep. So that's just one example, not a really unusual example. So it's the incredible generosity, the faith that it will be supported by people's generosity, and the happiness. I mean, I could imagine me, if I was doing that, I'd be like, hey, you know, where am I going to get the money? I can't believe I started this 300 and say, you know. <laughs> okay, so she wouldn't have a New York accent. But she, <laughs> she didn't even, not, nothing like that, smiling happy. She goes, yeah, 370, it's a lot. So we have to have two sessions, morning and afternoon. That's it. No, I wonder where the money will come from. No, just happiness to be able to offer. And this is really, um, as I say, not at all unusual. I could give you a lot of other similar examples. And it's not just in the ordained people. It's really endemic in the culture. Another time, a couple of years ago, right after the cyclone, when there was really starvation, I mean, people's uh, houses and food sources were destroyed. And so that time, even though it was a few months later, when we went, we offered the Sayadaw where we stay, the teacher, he wanted to offer a rice dana to the two villages on either side of the meditation center, which means you know, each, each household gets a big bag of rice. 
And in Burma, you have to be registered. They, they know exactly how many households in each village and how many people in each household and who's poor and who's not. So it's very organized. So we offered this to each household, and people would come, and we'd give them this huge bag of rice. And the women, they take this. I mean, I, it took two of us to lift it up. They plop it on their head and go walking off. It's quite amazing. And the next day, some of the monks were going on their alms round, and there was one um, Western monk, a Mexican guy, a friend of ours. So he told us he'd been there a few months. When he came back from the alms round, he said he was so touched because... The alms round, you always, they, each, each monastery, they go on the alms round in the same way. The villagers know which way they're going to go. The same people generally come out. You know, it's a, not a, sort of a ritual, but the people who can do come out or who want to. People who don't want to don't have to. And I went on that alms round this year, and I really saw what tiny little bits of rice that people give. They're really poor, but they're so happy to do that. So this Mexican monk, he said, but this day after the rice dana, he said there were so many more people out offering rice because now they had a little extra rice they could offer. And that's the first thing they did with it. They went and offered it because they had, now I can give something. And so the, the ability to give brings so much happiness. It's not about how much. And so the receiving is necessary for the giving, you know. It has to go together. It's so endemic in the culture that by the time one has been there a while, and I've talked to so many people, not even staying in monasteries, it's just a natural response people want to give. By the time you've been there a while, it starts to seep in. You start to feel happier. At first it's like, oh no, I have so much, don't give me anything. No, no. But then you start to see that's actually selfish because we're uncomfortable. No, no, don't give me anything. You keep it. You need it more than me. What does that do to someone who wants to offer you a bowl of rice? Oh, no, no, you keep it. It really stops the, the flow. Instead of allowing that person to experience the joy and the, the uh, open-heartedness and the non-clinging of, of giving, they're told, you know, no, you need to hold on to it. You need to take care of yourself. Don't give anything away because, you know, you might not have enough. It's feeding fear. And feeding a sense of, you know, I have more than you. It just feeds differentiation. So it's really a great learning and a very, uh, very powerful one, very powerful. And you even see it in the little kids. Like one time I was walking on this little street between these two meditation centers, just by myself, just walking from one to the other. And a little boy came up. He still had on his little school uniform. And I guess in this poor area, but he was very... He looks very tidy somehow, you know. And he came up to me with a little tiny jasmine flower and very formally came and bowed, handed me this jasmine flower, and ran off. I'd never seen him before. I never saw him since. He didn't know me from anybody. It was, it was just such a pure act of, of connectedness, of generosity. And I mean, I'm still happy when I think about it. And that's another thing with generosity I'll get to later. It's in the the motivation in our mind before we do an act of speech or generosity. It's in the doing of it. And later, the comic result, the vipaka of our generous act is we can recollect it to cultivate wholesomeness in our heart and mind. And that's really important and something we don't do that much. You know, Let me reflect on my generosity. Don't we think that sounds like a little bit full of ourselves? But it's completely the other. 
bring up the wholesomeness, contemplate it. It brightens the heart and the mind. So in the, the Buddha's teaching and in the suttas, the heart of generosity, just as the heart of all action, is in the motivation, not in the actual action, certainly not in what is given. The heart of it's in the motivation. And you can see this, I just tell some stories from the time of the Buddha about Anattapindaka, who was, uh, he was called the most uh, generous of the Buddha's supporters. And you read many suttas, he's very devoted. So many of the suttas that begin, thus have I heard, that's Ananda speaking. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetavana, the monastery of Anattapindaka. Anattapindaka, when he first met the Buddha, was so moved by faith that he offered, he bought at a ridiculously exorbitant price this beautiful place in Savati and offered it to the Buddha and the Sangha for their monastery as a place to stay. And it's said that the Buddha spent 19 of his 45 rain retreats in that place. So he stayed there more than anywhere else. So you read about Anattapindaka a lot. And what's interesting, what I want to to highlight at the moment, is how not only was he hugely generous, but what was important about it was that the seed of his generosity was from faith, from happiness, and from wanting to support the Sangha. And that that's really what, what, what matters in terms of generosity. So when he first met the Buddha, he was so excited. He heard there was this enlightened being. He was so excited he couldn't sleep. He's at his brother-in-law's house. So he finally got up in the middle of the night and started walking towards where he heard the Buddha was. And then he got really scared, like, I don't want to go. Oh, no, this is too intense. Oh, no, I can't do it. And he started to turn around and go back home. But they said some unseen being spoke to him, said, no, no, householder, go forward. You know, you need to go forward. But sometimes just we know something's going to be so life-changing. And even though our intuition's telling us this is for our own good and the good of all, it's scary, you know, we want to pull back. But he went and was so much in awe when he first saw the Buddha that he just fell at his feet and then stammered out the first thing that came to him, which was, oh, how did you sleep last night? And then he's like, oh, what a jerk, you know, how did you sleep last night? That's the best I can do. But of course the Buddha, you know, said, you know, having cut off all attachments, having removed care from the heart, the peaceful one indeed sleeps well, for he has attained (laughs) peace of mind. So it doesn't matter what you ask the Buddha, you're going to get a good teaching. And then he led Anattapindas the same thing, step by step, speaking of giving of virtue, exactly what I read about Supa Buddha. And Anattapindaka woke up. And he was so filled with faith. He was a real faith type in wisdom that he immediately invited the Buddha and all the 500 Sangha to come for a meal. And he bought this, this grove, you know, this Jeta grove. And then he just kept on supporting. You know, he would have every day, he would make a meal for 500 monks and nuns and they would come and he would offer this meal. Just so filled with faith. So then he, the area he was in, the king of that area, King Pasanadi, he heard of Anattapindaka's generosity, and he wanted to imitate him. You know, if he can be, have 500 monks, I can too. I'm the king. So he supplied alms for 500 monks daily. But one day, as he was on his way to talk with the monks, he learned from his servants 
that the monks were taking the food he had given to them away with them and giving it to their supporters in the city who would then offer it back to the monks. And so Anathapindika was mystified, for he said, he, not Anathapindika, King Pasanati, for the food he gave was very tasty. He was giving much higher quality food. Why were they doing this? So he asked the Buddha, and the Buddha explained to the king that in the palace, the king's servants distributed the food without any inner feeling, just as if they were taking orders from the king, if they were cleaning out a barn, or just doing anything. They had no feeling, and in fact, some of them had no love for the monks at all, but thought they were parasites. He said, when anything's given in that spirit, no one could feel comfortable accepting it, even if the meal is of the most delicious food. So they would go to the faithful householders and give the food, and the the faithful would offer it back. And he said, that's really, he said, you know, Natapindika and Visaka, who was a woman who was his equal in giving, they welcomed the monks and regarded them as spiritual friends. A humble meal provided by a friend would be worth much more than the most sumptuous meal offered by someone who did not give in the really generous open spirit. So that's really, really the heart of generosity is the motivation. Again from the Buddha, even if a person throws the rinsings of a bowl or a cup into a village pool or pond, you know, after you're just washing it, you just rinse it and throw the slops into a pond, thinking, may whatever animals live here feed on this, that would be a source of great generosity, a source of merit. So really, really, it's what's going on in the heart and the mind, which is obvious, because that's what's going to brighten and purify the heart and mind, the motivation, the quality in the mind, not just the outer action. So once in a retreat with Saida Upandita, the monk who was teaching with him, Nyanapanika, a Nepalese monk, gave a talk about practicing generosity. And I had notes of like six ways, six things to just think about, to, to pay attention to that I've really liked a lot. So I just will share that. The first is obvious. When the thought of giving comes up, the first thing is to just give attention to the motivation, to your inner motivation. You could say, purify it before giving. I was hearing um, a Tibetan teacher, Keeling Rinpoche, and he was talking about, you know, you could spend a long time just practicing in your mind giving. Just imagine someone and imagine giving something to them. And it could start with someone you love, sort of like metta practice, you know, go through people you love to people you feel ill will for. But anyway, just begin by in your mind the idea of giving. And, and kind of, in a way, purifying that motivation so you're not, oh, well, I guess I better give, okay, here. You know. Just really looking and seeing because it's about the motivation. And I've heard of Tibetan teaching, which I kind of like, although I haven't done it, which if it's really hard to let go of something um, in a material way, you could practice like with giving it from one hand to the other. <laughs> well, you know, okay, really let it go and <laughs> give it to this hand. I mean, that's just a way to play. But try it and see. And we're here in terms of giving. I'm not just talking about material stuff. Giving of our time. Giving of our services. Giving of our care. Just being willing to sit and listen to a friend. Talk about some problem they're having when you're in a little bit of a hurry. You know. So start by just 
attention to the volition, attention to what's the quality of, of motivation in the heart and mind now, and hanging with it, letting it purify. Of course it's not perfect. You don't have to wait until it's perfect, but at least noticing. And then, you know, if it's a time, service, material thing, whatever it is one's giving, see, notice if they're still clinging to it and see if you can abandon the clinging so that we're really giving. You know, not, I'll give it, maybe, maybe they won't want it and I'll give it back. Or I'll call and I'll offer. I notice this when I, I know I'm booking like um, phone conversations with people and I have to figure out the time like next week, which I somehow have trouble doing that. And I'll notice when I book the time and then I'll think, oh, maybe they won't you know, call today. Okay, that's not generosity. <laughs> I'll see that. It's like, what am I hoarding the time for? I don't even have something I want to do with it. And to just look at that and feel that contraction, that separation, that, oh, I'm just, oh, okay. Connect with the person, connect, oh, yeah. And then that open-hearted willingness to be present, it's lovely. It's like it's not so much about I'm doing it for them, I'm doing it for me, opening my mind, opening my heart from the clinging. The third, this, this Upandita also talked about, and this is really what I, I get the power of this from being in Burma, when it's possible, and it's often not possible in our culture, and not on retreat either, but when it's possible to directly give and receive face-to-face with a real presence. You know? And I noticed with Upandita, actually, one time I was on retreat and I heard he wanted a particular book, and I was on retreat. So I had someone buy it and give it to him, say it was for me. When I came out of retreat, this is how he's just so, like, just teaching all the time. He said to me, I went to pay my respects, and he said, okay. He got the book. He said, now hand it to me face to face. And I saw how shy I was, how I felt, you know, this isn't good enough or something. It's so just self, selfing, you know. And it's nothing. You just hand it. He received it. Bless you for it. May this be a cause for your awakening. That's something they often say in Burma. Even lay people, you hand them something, say, may this be the cause for that you reach Nibbana in this lifetime. Can you imagine you're sitting in a monastery, you offer something, someone says, may you reach Nibbana in this lifetime. It's so nice. Can you imagine you're in in a supermarket and you let someone go ahead of you, oh, may you reach Nibbana in this (laughs) lifetime. I mean, it really kind of sets your mind in a different way than ours. Oh, okay, thanks, yeah, right, I do only have one thing. I should go ahead of you, you know. Really different, really different. You see how it's contagious, how it opens us up. So in Burma, for example, when you're giving, and it's not only to monks and nuns, but we were giving a lot to nuns, it's, it's really quite formal. So if you're handing money, nuns can take money, monks can, it would go to a, a tenant, but you may be offering, like we find out that they needed toilets, and believe me, some of those nunneries needed toilets. Um, and we'd give them a six, seven hundred dollars. I mean, it's not nothing to build a couple of toilets or a well. You should see the disgusting holes they're drinking water out of. Um, so we'd be giving money for that. It's always like you get the get a tray, you put it on a tray. The people who are receiving, the people who are getting it, you all hold it together, and then they always take a picture. They love pictures. They're always taking photos, and you're holding it. And then they chant. They'll chant a metta chant. They'll chant a gratitude chant. They'll chant a blessing chant. You sit there on your knees holding it while they're chanting the chant. But it's beautiful. And even the little nunlets, like five-year-olds, they all stand there and chant the chant of blessing. And it's, by the end, it's not just like, oh, here's some money. It's like you feel blessed. I mean, you are being blessed. And you're all together in this kind of 
energy of faith and happiness and generosity. And you think, well, who's given what to who here? You know, it's just lovely. And then, so this, this face-to-face is something that I, I really miss a lot in this culture. And as I said, some of it's just how it's set up. We can't do it. And here on retreat, please, stay in the noble silence. Please not oh, start going face-to-face, giving each other stuff. No, please, not here, <laughs> because we're doing something else. But just to notice, not to you know, shy away, the, that sense of receiving with dignity and beauty is really, really important. Um, and it completes the circle. And just to say, I feel like I, I want to be a, for the people who've offered to these, I want to be like a, a transmission for that. So just how it really works, an example here, two people here, and I've talked to each of them, it came up in a different way, were part of a group that donated some of this money to one of the specific nunneries. And in both of them, they kind of said, well, what happened? And I could say, we gave this money to these nuns, told them who it was from, they had a photo from last year of two of the people who were spearheading that money. So we showed them their photo as from this group of people. Because then they want to know. They want to know specifically. If they can, they'll put the names of the people. I have my name on a couple of toilets. <laughs> Very proud. <laughs> and, you know, they want to know. They send blessings. And it was for specifically, you say what it's for, is for building like a, a, like a, a, a stone brick, room instead of these bamboo buildings that fall apart every six months. And then the next day, I could tell him, the next day we were out walking on this dusty road and this truck came by and the sister, one of the two nuns, was in the, dr- in the passenger seat, stopped to say hello to us. And it was a truck filled with cement and bricks. They had gone out immediately with that Donna to buy cement and bricks to start building the room. So when I told each of these two people separately this, they got so high. I could see. They weren't just saying it. Their faces lit up. They were so happy. It's like having that connection, that completion. It's not a completion because it's bringing happiness, and then from that happiness you want to do something for somebody else, and it just keeps on going. It's really a profound and enlivening practice. So the face-to-face is wonderful when it can happen. Then obviously the next Upandita, Unyanaponika uh, said, when we're giving time, materiality, energy, whatever, be present for it. You know, I say, with the mind focused on giving, I'm like, oh, yeah, right, I wanted to give you this thing, and I'm going to go have some tea. And how often do I do that? You know, I remember some little thing I gave a friend once, and he later said, oh, from your casual giving, but that particular thing has been really useful to me. He wasn't chastising me, but I felt chastised because it was true. It was a really offhand, I don't need this. If you want it, you could have it. So different from, oh, could you use this? You can have it. That's not to aggrandize myself, but it's just to be present with the giving, to open to the connectedness, to the interrelatedness. It's so much more powerful in my mind than would have been in his. After giving, continue to be aware of your volition. Because, you know, sometimes we regret it, right? Ah, damn. Why did I do that? Okay, if that comes up, it comes up, but notice it. Don't have to keep going into it, you know? Oh, yeah. You don't have to shut down again. I did give it. That was a good thing. Be mindful of the volition. And clear comprehension, awareness of the broader context, that there's times when we give something that isn't really appropriate or helpful. You know, the classic example is, you know, if you give um, 
someone who's an addict, you support their habit. You know, it's maybe not the most helpful thing. And there's the stories in the suttas about it. Again, with Anatta Pindaka, he was incredibly rich, and he had a nephew who was a real wastrel, would just, you know, keep wasting money. So I won't read the whole story because it would take too much time, but the, the nephew would come and ask Anatta Pindaka for like 3,000 talents, whatever. He would give it. The guy would go off and gamble it all away, then come back and ask for, for 4,000. Anatta Pindaka would give 5,000. He would go off, spend it all in raucous living, gamble it all away, come back and ask for more. So Anatta Pindaka went through this a couple times. Then he said, this is a warning. This is the last I'm going to give you. But of course, you know, the same thing. The nephew came back. So then he said, well, I'm not giving you any money, but I'll give you some clothes to take care of you. You know, he just went off and sold those, came back again. And finally, Anatta Pindaka said, no, I'm, I'm not giving you anything more. And the nephew went off and just continued in his wastrel living. He didn't even want to beg, which I guess you could do, and he didn't even want to beg, and he died, they said, a pitiful death. And Anatta Pindaka felt terrible, right? And went to the Buddha and said, should I have done something different? And I can really relate to this, a kind of, what's the difference between real generosity of heart and, and codependence, you know, where you feel, I have to do it, even though it's not really generosity. And the Buddha said, no, no, you shouldn't have done anything different. You did what you could, and he was one of the fortunately few people who just are like, you know, like a, like a pit, a hole, a money pit, who would just take and take and take and couldn't really, you know, better himself. There's nothing he could have really done. And I just think that's interesting. It's like dana or any of the wholesome qualities, they come together with wisdom, not some idealism. Just, you know, give till it hurts and then give more and then, you know, give until you're destroyed. It's not that. Clear comprehension of if what I'm giving is actually helpful or harmful to the person or to me. And so I, I just find that really, really interesting. And so in terms of how this can also support our practice here and now, this sense of purifying and bringing wholesome qualities to mind, changing the channel when we're caught in fear, ill will, but aversion, you know. Like and sometimes we say, oh, why don't you try doing some metta? The mind seems to be going just really kind of locked into uh, a suffering unwholesome place. It's the same idea. Metta is just not the only way. It's one way. Kamajan Pasano in that book, The Island, which is a great book if you haven't seen it, he says there's a naturalness to this gradual training. For example, when one is generous and delights in giving, the heart tends to be satisfied and joyous. This supports the cultivation of virtue, of non-harming, because a heart that is satisfied and contented easily inclines to restraint and composure. With this composure, together with the lack of remorse that virtue affords, the heart is easily settled and focused. Meditation thus progresses more smoothly and the mind naturally brightens, making it suitable for recognizing things as they truly are. That's the key. Only the mind heart that's free from clinging in a moment can recognize things as they actually are, yata bhuta. And so all of these different practices, virtue, generosity, the Brahma Viharas, are all different ways of bringing in 
and strengthening this clarity and brightness and openness and freedom of heart and mind. So for our own practice here, one way, and in, a, in daily life, not just here, when you notice you're really locked in clinging or self-judgment or negativity or depression or anything, it's all about me, me, try just doing some generous act. Just to see how that changes the channel. It busts us out of, even for a moment, the self-involvement. Give something to somebody, do something for somebody. It, it can just be a little thing. You know? But do those things of really clarifying the motivation and doing it wholeheartedly. And then we think, okay, I'm doing this for my own good. You'll notice that's part of the mixed motivation. But get in touch with what it actually means to offer this thing, or this time, or this service, or whatever. And feel the happiness, the uplifting that that can bring. Don't be shy about really settling into this wholesomeness. Oh yeah, that's wholesome, la la la, don't want to get too caught in the pleasant. No. Settle into the wholesomeness. Really feel the difference between the wholesome mind and heart and the unwholesome. We can tell the difference. We know when we're suffering, but we can also know when we're not, when the mind and heart is bright. And what feeds that? Really, really helpful. And also, as I mentioned at the beginning, and I'll just for a minute end with this, is that we can cultivate as a contemplation, and the Buddha talks about this, contemplating our own past generosity as a way of basically changing the channel when we're caught. There's um, a sutta translated by Andy Olensky called um, Directed and Non-Directed Meditation. It basically is saying when one is, I don't know where it is here somewhere, but anyway, when one is practicing in the way of the four foundations of mindfulness, you know, mindfulness of body, that the mind becomes, uh, let me find, the mind becomes restless. Oh, here it is. Your contemplating body is body, ardent, fully aware, mindful, leading away from the unhappiness that comes from wanting the things of the world. And it can happen, maybe you've noticed this, contemplating a bodily object arises, physical object, or a mental object arises, or bodily distress arises, or mental sluggishness arises, and the mind becomes scattered outwards. Did you ever notice that? Just the mind's going outwards. So he says you don't have to just, sometimes we can be mindful of that, but sometimes it's too scattered. And then he says, direct the mind, this is directed meditation, to some inspiring object or subject, some inspiring image. Metta is one example of that. Another example that he talks about is this contemplating our generosity. There's actually six contemplations he talks about. Our generosity, our virtue, the devas, so that may or may not apply to you. And this and this is much more done in Buddhist countries. I, I don't know how much it works for some of us, but contemplations on the qualities of a Buddha, on the Dhamma, and on the Sangha. All of these can bring real wholesome energy into the mind. But I just want to read the generosity. So he's talking to lay people now, too. Furthermore, this is the case where you recollect your own generosity. So it is a great profit for me, great gain, really wholesome for me, 
that living among people at home, among people who are overcome with the, with the habit of possessiveness, I live at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness. Freely generous, open-handed, delighting in being generous, responsive to requests. And at any time when a disciple of the Noble Ones is recollecting their generosity, her mind is not overcome with greed, is not overcome with aversion, is not overcome with delusion. Her mind, her heart heads straight based on generosity. This is the key. Any time you're recollecting your generosity, the mind is not overcome with greed, hatred, delusion. When the mind, the heart is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones has a sense of the, of the goal, gains a sense of the Dhamma, experiences joy connected with the Dhamma. And one who is joyful, rapture arises. And one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. And one whose body is calmed, experienced ease. And one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. Just this sense of cause and effect, not willpower. So Mahanama, this is the lay person he's talking about, you should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with children. In other words, whatever we're doing, it doesn't have to be on a meditation retreat. We can recollect our generosity, we can practice our generosity, and it's a, a great gain for us, a great practice of freeing the heart and mind from clinging, and a great source of joy and happiness. So may we all experience the happiness and freedom that the cultivation of generosity can bring into our mind and heart. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.